Book Two, Chapter Six of Two Treatises of Civil Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Two Treatises of Civil Government by John Locke. Book Two, Chapter Six, of Paternal Power. It may perhaps be censured as an impertinent criticism in a discourse of this nature to find fault with words and names that have obtained in the world, and yet possibly it may not be amiss to offer new ones when the old are apt to lead men into mistakes, as this of paternal power probably has done, which seems so to place the power of parents over their children wholly in the father, as if the mother had no share in it. Whereas, if we consult reason or revelation, we shall find she hath an equal title." This may give one reason to ask whether this might not be more properly called parental power. For whatever obligation nature and the right of generation lays on children, it must certainly bind them equal to both the concurrent causes of it. And accordingly we see the positive law of God everywhere joins them together, without distinction, when it commands the obedience of children. Honour thy father and thy mother, Exodus 20.12, Whosoever curseth his father or his mother, Leviticus 20, 9. Ye shall fear every man his mother and his father, Leviticus 19, 3. Children, obey your parents, etc. Ephesians 6, 1 is the style of the Old and New Testament. Had but this one thing been well considered, without looking any deeper into the matter, it might perhaps have kept men from running into those gross mistakes they have made about this power of parents, which, however it might, without any great harshness, bear the name of absolute dominion and regal authority, when under the title of paternal power it seemed appropriated to the father, would yet have sounded but oddly, and in the very name shown the absurdity, if this supposed absolute power over children had been called parental and thereby have discovered that it belonged to the mother too. For it will but very ill serve the turn of those men who contend so much for the absolute power and authority of the fatherhood, as they call it, that the mother should have any share in it, and it would have but ill-supported the monarchy they contend for, when by the very name it appeared that that fundamental authority from whence they would derive their government of a single person only, was not placed in one, but two persons jointly to let this of names pass. Though I have said above, chapter 2, that all men by nature are equal, I cannot be supposed to understand all sorts of equality. Age or virtue may give men a just precedency. Excellency of parts and merit may place others above the common level. Birth may subject some, and alliance or benefits others, to pay an observance to those to whom nature, gratitude, or other respects may have made it due, and yet all this consists with the equality which all men are in, in respect of jurisdiction or dominion one over another, which was the equality I there spoke of, as proper to the business in hand, being that equal right that every man hath to his natural freedom, without being subjected to the will or authority of any other man." Children, I confess, are not born in this full state of equality, though they are born to it. Their parents have a sort of rule and jurisdiction over them, when they come into the world, and for some time after, but it is but a temporary one. 
the bonds of this subjection are like the swaddling clothes they are wrapped up in and supported by in the weakness of their infancy age and reason as they grow up loosen them till at length they drop quite off and leave a man at his own free disposal adam was created a perfect man his body and mind in full possession of their strength and reason and so was capable from the first instant of his being to provide for his own support and preservation and govern his actions according to the dictates of the law of reason which god had implanted in him from him the world is peopled with his descendants who are all born infants weak and helpless without knowledge or understanding but to supply the defects of this imperfect state till the improvement of growth and age hath removed them adam and eve and after them all parents were by the law of nature under an obligation to preserve nourish and educate the children they had begotten not as their own workmanship but the workmanship of their own maker the almighty to whom they were to be accountable for them the law that was to govern adam was the same that was to govern all his posterity the law of reason but his offspring having another way of entrance into the world different from him by a natural birth that produced them ignorant and without the use of reason they were not presently under that law for nobody can be under a law which is not promulgated to him and this law being promulgated or made known by reason only he that is not come to the use of his reason cannot be said to be under this law and adam's children being not presently as soon as born under this law of reason were not presently free for law in its true notion is not so much the limitation as the direction of a free and intelligent agent to his proper interest and prescribes no farther than is for the general good of those under that law could they be happier without it the law as a useless thing would of itself vanish and that ill deserves the name of confinement which hedges us in only from bogs and precipices so that however it may be mistaken the end of law is not to abolish or restrain but to preserve and enlarge freedom for in all the states of created beings capable of laws where there is no law there is no freedom for liberty is to be free from restraint and violence from others which cannot be where there is no law but freedom is not as we are told a liberty for every man to do what he lists for who could be free when every other man's humour might domineer over him but a liberty to dispose and order as he lists his person actions possessions and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is and therein not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another but freely follow his own the power then that parents have over their children arises from that duty which is incumbent on them to take care of their offspring during the imperfect state of childhood to inform the mind and govern the actions of their yet ignorant non-age till reason shall take its place and ease them of that trouble is what the children want and the parents are bound to for god having given man an understanding to direct his actions has allowed him a freedom of will and liberty of acting as properly belonging thereunto within the bounds of that law he is under but whilst he is in an estate wherein he has not understanding of his own to direct his will he is not to have any will of his own to follow he that understands for him must will for him too he must prescribe to his will and regulate his actions but when he comes to the estate that made his father a freeman 
the son is a free man too. This holds in all the laws a man is under, whether natural or civil. Is a man under the law of nature? What made him free of that law? What gave him a free disposing of his property, according to his own will, within the compass of that law? I answer, a state of maturity, wherein he might be supposed capable to know that law, that so he might keep his actions within the bounds of it. When he has acquired that state, he is presumed to know how far that law is to be his guide, and how far he may make use of his freedom, and so comes to have it. Till then, somebody else must guide him, who is presumed to know how far the law allows liberty. If such a state of reason, such an age of discretion, made him free, the same shall make his son free too. Is a man under the law of England? What made him free of that law? That is, to have the liberty to dispose of his actions and possessions according to his own will, within the permission of that law. A capacity of knowing that law which is supposed by that law at the age of one and twenty years, and in some cases sooner. If this made the father free, it shall make the son free too. Till then we see the law allows the son to have no will, but he is to be guided by the will of his father or guardian, who is to understand for him. And if the father die, and fail to substitute a deputy in his trust, if he hath not provided a tutor to govern his son during his minority, during his want of understanding, the law takes care to do it. Some other must govern him, and be a will to him, till he hath attained to a state of freedom, and as understanding be fit to take the government of his will. But after that, the father and son are equally free as much as a tutor and pupil, after nonage, equally subject of the same law together, without any dominion left in the father over the life, liberty, or estate of his son, whether they be only in the state and under the law of nature, or under the positive laws of an established government. But if, through defects that may happen out of the ordinary course of nature, any one comes not to such a degree of reason wherein he might be supposed capable of knowing the law, and so living within the rules of it, he is never capable of being a free man, he is never let loose to the disposure of his own will, because he knows no bounds to it, has not understanding, its proper guide, but is continued under the tuition and government of others, all the time his own understanding is incapable of that charge. And so lunatics and idiots are never set free from the government of their parents, children who are not as yet come unto those years whereat they may have, and innocents which are excluded by a natural defect from ever having, thirdly, madmen which for the present cannot possibly have the use of right reason to guide themselves, have for their guide the reason that guideth other men, which are tutors over them, to seek and procure their good for them, says Hooker, of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, Book One, Section Seven. All which seems no more than that duty which God and nature has laid on man, as well as other creatures, to preserve their offspring till they can be able to shift for themselves, and will scarce amount to an instance of proof of parents' regal authority. Thus we are born free, as we are born rational, not that we have actually the exercise of either. Age that brings one brings with it the other too, and thus we see how natural freedom and subjection to parents may consist together, and are both founded on the same principle. A child is free by his father's title, by his father's understanding, which is to govern him till he hath it of its own. 
the freedom of a man at years of discretion and the subjection of a child to his parents whilst yet short of that age are so consistent and so distinguishable that the most blinded contenders for monarchy by right of fatherhood cannot miss this difference the most obstinate cannot but allow their consistency for were their doctrine all true were the right heir of adam now known and by that title settled a monarch in his throne invested with all the absolute unlimited power sir robert filmer talks of if he should die as soon as his heir were born must not the child notwithstanding he were never so free never so much sovereign be in subjection to his mother and nurse to tutors and governors till age and education brought him reason and ability to govern himself and others the necessities of his life the health of his body and the information of his mind would require him to be directed by the will of others and not his own and yet will any one think that this restraint and subjection were inconsistent with or spoiled him of that liberty or sovereignty he had a right to or gave away his empire to those who had the government of his knowledge this government over him only prepared him the better and sooner for it if anybody should ask me when my son is of age to be free i shall answer just when his monarch is of age to govern but at what time says the judicious hooker of the laws of ecclesiastical polity book one section six a man may be said to have attained so far forth the use of reason as sufficeth to make him capable of those laws whereby he is then bound to guide his actions this is a great deal more easy for sense to discern than for any one by skill and learning to determine commonwealths themselves take notice of and allow that there is a time when men are to begin to act like freemen and therefore till that time require not oaths of fealty or allegiance or other public owning of or submission to the government of their countries the freedom then of men and liberty of acting according to his own will is grounded on his having reason which is able to instruct him in that law he is to govern himself by and make him know how far he is left to the freedom of his own will to turn him loose to an unrestrained liberty before he has reason to guide him is not the allowing him the privilege of his nature to be free but to thrust him out amongst brutes and abandon him to a state as wretched and as much beneath that of a man as theirs this is that which puts the authority into the parents hands to govern the minority of their children god hath made it their business to employ this care on their offspring and hath placed in them suitable inclinations of tenderness and concern to temper this power to apply it as his wisdom designed it to the children's good as long as he should need to be under it but what reason can hence advance this care of the parents due to their offspring into an absolute arbitrary dominion of the father whose power reaches no farther than by such a discipline as he finds most effectual to give such strength and health to their bodies such vigour and rectitude to their minds as may best fit his children to be most useful to themselves and others and if it be necessary to his condition to make them work when they are able for their own subsistence but in this power the mother too has her share with the father nay this power so little belongs to the father by any peculiar right of nature but only as he is guardian of his children that when he quits his care of them he loses his power over them which goes along with their nourishment and education 
to which it is inseparably annexed, and it belongs as much to the foster-father of an exposed child as to the natural father of another. So little power does the bare act of begetting give a man over his issue, if all his care ends there, and this be all the title he hath to the name and authority of a father. And what will become of this paternal power in that part of the world where one woman hath more than one husband at a time? Or in those parts of America where, when the husband and wife part, which happens frequently, the children are all left to the mother, follow her, and are wholly under her care and provision? If the father die whilst the children are young, do they not naturally everywhere owe the same obedience to their mother during their minority as to their father were he alive? And will any one say that the mother had the legislative power over her children, that she can make standing rules which shall be of perpetual obligation, by which they ought to regulate all the concerns of their property, and bound their liberty all the course of their lives? Or can she enforce the observation of them with capital punishments? For this is the proper power of the magistrate, of which the father had not so much as the shadow. His command over his children is but temporary, and reaches not their life or property. It is but a help to the weakness and imperfection of their knowledge, a discipline necessary to their education. And, though a father may dispose of his own possessions as he pleases, when his children are out of danger of perishing for want, yet his power extends not to the lives or goods which either their own industry or another's bounty has made theirs, nor to their liberty neither when they are once arrived to the enfranchisement of the years of discretion. The father's empire then ceases, and he can from thence forwards no more dispose of the liberty of his son than that of any other man, and it must be far from an absolute or perpetual jurisdiction from which a man may withdraw himself having license from divine authority to leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. But, though there be a time when a child comes to be as free from the subjection to the will and command of his father as the father himself is free from subjection to the will of anybody else, and they are each under no other restraint but that which is common to them both, whether it be the law of nature or municipal law of their country, Yet this freedom exempts not a son from that honour which he ought, by the law of God and nature, to pay his parents. God, having made the parents instruments in his great design of continuing the race of mankind, and the occasions of life to their children, as yet laid on them an obligation to nourish, preserve, and bring up their offspring, so he has laid on the children a perpetual obligation of honouring their parents, which, containing in it, an inward esteem and reverence to be shown by all outward expressions, ties up the child from anything that may ever injure or affront, disturb or endanger, the happiness or life of those from whom he received his, and engages him in all actions of defence, relief, assistance and comfort of those by whose means he entered into being, and has been made capable of any enjoyments of life. From this obligation, no state, no freedom, can absolve children. But this is very far from giving parents a power of command over their children, or an authority to make laws and dispose as they please of their lives or liberties. It is one thing to owe honour, respect, gratitude and assistance, another to require an absolute obedience and submission. The honour due to parents, a monarch in his throne owes his mother, and yet this lessens not his authority, 
nor subjects him to her government. The subjection of a minor places in the father a temporary government, which terminates with the minority of the child, and the honour due from a child places in the parents a perpetual right to respect, reverence, support, and compliance too, more or less, as the father's care, cost, and kindness in his education has been more or less. This ends not with minority, but holds in all parts and conditions of a man's life. The want of distinguishing these two powers, that is, that which the father hath in the right of tuition during minority, and the right of honour all his life, may perhaps have caused a great part of the mistakes about this matter. For to speak properly of them, the first of these is rather the privilege of children and duty of parents than any prerogative of paternal power. The nourishment and education of their children is a charge so incumbent on parents for their children's good, that nothing can absolve them from taking care of it, and though the power of commanding and chastising them go along with it, yet God hath woven into the principles of human nature such a tenderness for their offspring, that there is little fear that parents should use their power with too much rigour. The excess is seldom on the severe side, the strong bias of nature drawing the other way. And therefore God Almighty, when he would express his gentle dealings with the Israelites, he tells them that, though he chastened them, he chastened them as a man chastens his son. Deuteronomy 8.5 That is, with tenderness and affection, and kept them under no severer discipline than what was absolutely best for them, and had been less kindness to have slackened. This is that power to which children are commanded obedience, that the pains and care of their parents may not be increased or ill-rewarded. On the other side, honour and support, all that which gratitude requires to return for the benefits received by and from them, is the indispensable duty of the child and the proper privilege of the parents. This is intended for the parent's advantage, as the other is for the child's. Though education, the parent's duty, seems to have most power, because the ignorance and infirmities of childhood stand in need of restraint and correction, which is a visible exercise of rule and a kind of dominion. And that duty which is comprehended in the word honour requires less obedience, though the obligation be stronger on grown than younger children. For who can think the command, children obey your parents, requires in a man that has children of his own the same submission to his father as it does in his yet young children to him, and that by this precept he were bound to obey all his father's commands, if, out of a conceit of authority, he should have the indiscretion to treat him still as a boy. The first part, then, of paternal power, or rather duty, which is education, belongs so to the father that it terminates at a certain season. When the business of education is over, it ceases of itself, and is also alienable before. For a man may put the tuition of his son in other hands, and he that has made his son an apprentice to another has discharged him during that time of a great part of his obedience both to himself and to his mother. But all the duty of honour, the other part, remains nevertheless entire to them. Nothing can cancel that. It is so inseparable from them both that the father's authority cannot dispossess the mother of this right nor can any man discharge his son from honouring her that bore him. But both these are very far from a power to make laws and enforcing them with penalties that may reach a state, liberty, limbs, and life. The power of commanding ends with knowledge, 
and though after that honour and respect, support and defence, and whatsoever gratitude can oblige a man to, for the highest benefits he is naturally capable of, be always due from a son to his parents, yet all this puts no sceptre into the father's hand, no sovereign power of commanding. He has no dominion over his son's property or actions, nor any right that his will should prescribe to his sons in all things. However, it may become his son in many things not very inconvenient to him and his family to pay a deference to it. A man may owe honour and respect to an ancient or wise man, defence to his child or friend, relief and support to the distressed, and gratitude to a benefactor, to such a degree that all he has, all he can do, cannot sufficiently pay it. But all these give no authority, no right to any one, of making laws over him from whom they are owing. And it is plain, all this is due not only to the bare title of father, not only because, as has been said, it is owing to the mother too, but because these obligations to parents, and the degrees of what is required of children, may be varied by the different care and kindness, trouble and expense, which is often employed upon one child more than another. This shows the reason how it comes to pass that parents in societies where they themselves are subjects retain a power over their children, and have as much right to their subjection as those who are in the state of nature, which could not possibly be if all political power were only paternal, and that in truth they were one and the same thing. For then, all paternal power being in the prince, the subject could naturally have none of it. But these two powers, political and paternal, are so perfectly distinct and separate, are built upon so different foundations, and given to so different ends, that every subject that is a father has as much a paternal power over his children as the prince has over his, and every prince that has parents owes them as much filial duty and obedience as the meanest of his subjects do to theirs and can therefore contain not any part or degree of that kind of dominion which a prince or magistrate has over his subject. Though the obligation on the parents to bring up their children, and the obligation on children to honour their parents, contain all the power on the one hand, and submission on the other, which are proper to this relation, yet there is another power ordinarily in the father, whereby he has a tie on the obedience of his children, which, though it be common to him with other men, yet the occasions of showing it, almost constantly happening to fathers in their private families, and the instances of it elsewhere being rare, and less taken notice of, it passes in the world for a part of paternal jurisdiction. And this is the power men generally have to bestow their estates on those who please them best. The possession of the father being the expectation and inheritance of the children, ordinarily in certain proportions, according to the law and custom of each country. Yet it is commonly in the father's power to bestow it with a more sparing or liberal hand, according as the behaviour of this or that child hath comported with his will and humour. This is no small tie on the obedience of children, and, there being always annexed to the enjoyment of land, a submission to the government of the country of which that land is a part, it has been commonly supposed that the father could oblige his posterity to that government, of which he himself was a subject, and that his compact held them. Whereas, it being only a necessary condition, and next to the land, and the inheritance of an estate which is under that government, reaches only those who will take it on that condition, 
and so is no natural tie or engagement, but a voluntary submission. For every man's children being by nature as free as himself, or any of his ancestors ever were, may, whilst they are in that freedom, choose what society they will join themselves to, what commonwealth they will put themselves under. But if they will enjoy the inheritance of their ancestors, they must take it on the same terms their ancestors had it, and submit to all the conditions annexed to such a possession. By this power, indeed, fathers oblige their children to obedience to themselves, even when they are past minority, and most commonly, too, subject them to this or that political power. But neither of these by any peculiar right of fatherhood, but by the reward they have in their hands to enforce and recompense such a compliance, and is no more power than what a French man has over an Englishman, who by the hopes of an estate he will leave him, will certainly have a strong tie on his obedience, and if, when it is left him, he will enjoy it, he must certainly take it upon the conditions annexed to the possession of land in that country where it lies, whether it be France or England. To conclude, then, though the father's power of commanding extends no farther than the minority of his children, and to a degree only fit for the discipline and government of that age, and though that honour and respect, and all that which the Latins called piety, which they indispensably owe to their parents all their lifetime, and in all estates, with all that support and defence is due to them, gives the father no power of governing, that is, making laws and enacting penalties on his children, though by all this he has no dominion over the property or actions of his son. Yet it is obvious to conceive how easy it was in the first ages of the world, and in places still where the thinness of people gives families leave to separate into unpossessed quarters, and they have room to remove or plant themselves in yet vacant habitations, for the father of the family to become the prince of it. He had been a ruler from the beginning of the infancy of his children, and since without some government it would be hard for them to live together, it was likeliest it should, by the express or tacit consent of the children when they were grown up, be in the father, where it seemed without change barely to continue, when indeed nothing more was required to it than the permitting the father to exercise alone in his family that executive power of the law of nature which every free man naturally hath and by that permission resigning up to him a monarchical power whilst they remained in it. But that this was not by any paternal right, but only by the consent of his children, is evident from hence that nobody doubts but if a stranger, whom chance or business has brought to his family, had there killed any of his children, or committed any other fact, he might condemn and put him to death, or otherwise have punished him, as well as any of his children." which it was impossible he should do by virtue of any paternal authority over one who was not his child, but by virtue of that executive power of the law of nature which, as a man, he had a right to, and he alone could punish him in his family, where the respect of his children had laid by the exercise of such a power to give way to the dignity and authority they were willing should remain in him above the rest of his family." Thus it was easy and almost natural for children, by a tacit and scarce avoidable consent, to make way for the father's authority and government. They had been accustomed in their childhood to follow his direction, and to refer their little differences to him, and when they were men, who fitted to rule them? Their little properties and less covetousness seldom afforded greater controversies. 
and when any should arise, where could they have a fitter umpire than he, by whose care they had every one been sustained and brought up, and who had a tenderness for them all? It is no wonder that they made no distinction betwixt minority and full age, nor looked after one and twenty or any other age that might make them the free disposers of themselves and fortunes, when they could have no desire to be out of their pupilage. The government they had been under, during it, continued still to be more their protection than restraint, and they could nowhere find a greater security to their peace, liberty, and fortunes than in the rule of a father. Thus the natural fathers of families, by an insensible change, became the politic monarchs of them too, and as they chanced to live long and leave able and worthy heirs for several successions or otherwise, so they laid the foundations of hereditary or elective kingdoms, under several constitutions and manners, according as chance, contrivance, or occasions happened to mould them. But if princes have their titles in their father's right, and it be a sufficient proof of the natural right of fathers to political authority, because they commonly were those in whose hands we find, de facto, the exercise of government, I say, if this argument be good, it will as strongly prove that all princes, nay, princes only, ought to be priests, since it is as certain that in the beginning the father of the family was priest as that he was ruler in his own household. End of Book 2, Chapter 6